Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a two-week Easter series entitled The Resurrection. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Of First Importance. There are for all of us a number of things we know with certainty and some things we don't know a lot about. For instance, I don't know a lot about computers. I know some things about them, but it doesn't take me long when I'm out of my league. And when that happens, I usually consult someone who knows a lot. See, the same is true when I get on an airplane. Same is true when I buy groceries. I don't know a lot about how they're grown and whether the food is safe, but somebody out there knows a lot and I'm content to believe that, well, they're doing their job. But there are other things I know quite well. We're all like that. One person knows automobiles. Another person just knows how to turn the thing on. One person knows all the details about financial investments. The other is clueless about how to invest. Well, you get the idea. In our world with so much information, so many specialties, all of us admit that there are many things we know little or nothing about at all. And we're okay with that as long as somebody knows we're going to rely on them. What I'm urging upon all of us is simply this. Don't rely on anyone else when it comes to your eternity. If there's one thing in your life you ought to know as well as it can possibly be known, it should be on the subject of eternity and where you're going to spend it. Well, we're now in the Easter season, and at Easter time, it's never a question of how to come up with something to say. It's a, it's a question of narrowing down the subject matter. See, most Easter's, if you're going to forgive this, most Easter's, as I prepare what I'm going to say, I feel like the the proverbial mosquito in the nudist colony. I mean, where do I start? I mean, after all, rightly understood, the entire Bible leads up to one climax, and that's the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this year at Easter, I've decided to make my focus that of the resurrection of Jesus. I've decided to make 1 Corinthians 15 the focus. See, what's fascinating about 1 Corinthians 15 is that this letter was written probably in A.D. 54. Depending on where exactly you date the resurrection of Jesus, whether it's A.D. 30 or 33, it should be easy to see that 1 Corinthians 15 was written just a little over 20 years after the resurrection. And the first of the four Gospels, that is Mark, was written a little over five years after 1 Corinthians. And so, from a document perspective... This is the first written document dedicated to the theme of the resurrection of Jesus. What's fascinating, of course, is that when this was written, there have been all manner of people who saw the resurrection and those who talked to people who saw Jesus raised. And so this document reflects the earliest eyewitness account of the resurrection. Now, before we dive right into the passage, let's step back for just a second and let's get the context. The book of 1 Corinthians consistently focuses on Jesus' death on the cross and its consequences in the life of believers. The book begins with a declaration that even though the word of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, nonetheless, this, that is, the cross, is the wisdom and the power of God. And so it seems natural that a book that begins with a discussion of the central place of the cross would then contain a fuller chapter about the meaning and the relevance of the resurrection. The book of 1 Corinthians is also a response to the problems of a local church. The Christian church in the Greek city of Corinth had some significant problems. 
Chapter 15, while it is about the resurrection, is actually a response to errors and confusion and a general misunderstanding of the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. Let me read verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So what was being denied by some in the church in Corinth was not that Jesus was raised from the dead, but rather that those who are his followers and believe in him would themselves be raised from the dead. That's what Paul means when he says, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? The fact that some believers in the Corinthian church denied the resurrection of the dead, this fact forms the basis of everything that is taught in this chapter. Paul wants to give the Corinthian Christians a sound basis upon which they will know for certain the great and glorious truth of the resurrection from the dead. But how do you convince these people of that? Let me try to illustrate this problem. Imagine you were one of the men who went along with Christopher Columbus in 1492, setting out from Spain. You've become convinced that all the sailors were wrong, that the earth really isn't flat after all, and that if you sail far enough into the Atlantic, going east and not turning back, you're going to come to China. Of course, Columbus underestimated the circumference of the earth, but you don't know that. Believing that the earth is round, you can find a fast route to China, and you're going to become rich, so you sign up. So you leave the coast of Spain in August 3, 1492. You sail for several weeks, and the excitement becomes a low-burning anxiety. We're further out now than anyone has ever been before. How long is this going to go on? Now, you've been sailing for a month, and you're still heading east. No land is in sight. No one has been out this far. A number of the old fears begin to resurface. Some suggest that everyone should turn around. Maybe we're nearing the end of the world, and we're soon going to fall off. But your captain demands you go on five weeks, six weeks, now it's two months, and still only ocean. Now some openly speak about coming to a great chasm in which the three ships are going to fall. Soon sailors are at the point of mutiny. Let's kill Columbus and turn around and let's go home. The question to be asked is this, didn't they believe that the world was round? Had this not become a confirmed scientific fact? Yes, it seems it had. But the sailors hadn't worked out all the implications of this fact. See, the implication was if you keep sailing east, you're in fact coming close to land. What would happen if the circumference of the earth was larger than they had assumed? Well, just keep sailing. The further out you sail, the safer you become. But they don't want to keep going. They are now afraid. You know, sometimes our present fears overrule the facts and we stop being rational. You know, in some ways, this is what happened at Corinth. The Corinthian believers had accepted the gospel, but they hadn't worked out its implications when they were about to sail off the map. You know, sometimes I've seen this in people who are at the point of death. They've come to Christ years earlier. They believed that Christ was who he said he was and that he had died on the cross for their sins and that he was raised three days later. Death's power had been broken. But now they're faced with their own death. And then they begin to entertain overwhelming doubts. They're now sailing somewhere that they've never been before. What if I fall off the end of the earth into nothingness? The task then is to convince them that the further they move toward death, the closer they are coming to land. Eternity beckons, but they have to trust and not allow irrational fears to rule their souls.
But did you know, you don't have to be on the precipice of your own death to struggle with these doubts. The crazy thing about some doubts that we entertain is that they simply are allowed to grow in our own hearts and minds without challenging these doubts, and it's, it's not rational. See, the only way to deal with doubts surrounding the resurrection from the dead was to bring the Corinthian believers back to the facts that they already knew, and for many of us, these are also the facts that we already know. And so let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 15. Today, rather than covering the issue of the resurrection, let's start with something that's more basic. 1 Corinthians 15, to 3 Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. Paul begins by saying, let me remind you of the gospel I preached to you. You know, for our purposes, the word the gospel, it simply means the good news. So here's the issue. When Paul came to Corinth, he preached the good news about Jesus. Uh, In other words, when he told the Corinthians something about Jesus, what he told them, well, that was extremely good news. And somewhere along the way, it would seem that some of the Corinthian believers forgot just how good the good news actually was. And I think it's the same way for us. So many of the doubts and fears that we allow to play in our own imagination is due to the fact that we don't review the gospel in our minds often enough. Now, I've said this sometimes, and I'll say it now. I think that every single believer owes it to himself or to herself to regularly preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves of what we have come to believe, and so to hear ourselves preaching it to ourselves so that we can again reinforce these truths. Just like the sailors on Columbus's boat, we need to review the things that we already know with certainty. Every year we have the privilege of putting together a five-message series of Dr. Neufeld's most impactful messages of the year. So available to anyone who would ask as our free gift, we want to make available for this month only the Highlight Reel 2016. Five wonderful, inspiring, and biblical messages from Dr. Neufeld's Journey to the Cross, Remembering the Reformation, and other series as well. All of these messages represent the excellence in Bible teaching that you can expect from Back to the Bible Canada. So please take the opportunity to ask for your free Highlight Reel 2016 CD series today as our gift. To request your copy, find out more about Back to the Bible Canada or offer a much appreciated ministry donation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or visit us online at Back to the Bible. Paul begins his famous chapter on the resurrection with the words, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. And then what follows is a brief summary of that gospel. Now if you go forward to verse 3, Paul adds the words, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, he means, of course, that the gospel that he preached to the Corinthians was a matter of primary importance. Paul means to say there is something about Jesus that is the main thing. There was nothing about Jesus more important than this one thing. 
So let me stop here for a moment. There are all manner of people that are confused about this. If you ask them, what is Christianity all about? They're going to scratch their head and they're going to say, well, it's about a lot of things. See, they can't identify the main thing or the matter of first importance, and that is overwhelmingly discouraging. You know, I've been amazed at how often I have in the past interviewed a potential pastor regarding a position, and my first question would always go like this. Imagine I'm a non-Christian. Please explain the gospel to me. What's the good news about Jesus? See, I'm profoundly overwhelmed by how many potential pastors, some of them seminary trained, simply couldn't answer that question. One person said, well, the gospel is all about Jesus. And I said, what about Jesus is such good news for me? And he said, well, that Jesus announced his kingdom. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, it means that Jesus has begun to reign over this earth. And I said, really? Given that this earth is filled with wars and hatred and acts of terrorism and cancer and Alzheimer's and misery, I'm I'm just wondering, how can what you're saying sound like good news to me? And the answer was, he said, well, I don't really know. Now, as an aside, just in case you're wondering whether I believe that Jesus has begun to reign, well, yes, I do. He has begun to reign by calling a people to himself a people made up of every language and culture and people group, and he's forgiving their sins through the gospel, having paid for their debt of sin by his own death on the cross and has reconciled them to the Father and is transforming their hearts. But he has, because of his own designs, decided to leave the matter of wars and Alzheimer's diseases to be solved at his second coming. But that gets me back to my pastoral interview. When I asked this young man what the good news was and how it is that Jesus was reigning now, he said he didn't know. And if he doesn't know, is it any wonder why so many Christians don't know either and why so many non-Christians have simply never heard the gospel or the good news? See, there is in our day a profound ignorance about that, which Paul calls this thing about Jesus that is of first importance. But the Corinthian believers weren't unaware. They had heard it. They weren't ignorant of it, for they clearly heard it from Paul. Indeed, he said he preached this thing, and the Corinthians, according to verse 1, received it. In the Greek, the word received means they welcomed it with great joy. The good news about Jesus changed their lives. So let's allow Paul to describe what was of first importance. That is, let's let him describe the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Look again at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. And that's a mouthful. And notice, first of all, that you and I have sins. Whenever we knowingly or unknowingly break God's law, we sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, God demands that every sin be duly punished. Eternal death is eternal damnation. But our statement says that Christ died for our sins. It has sometimes been called the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, I know that's a $5 phrase. I know, I know. But what does it mean? Well, first, Christ's death is penal, which means that I deserve the penalty for my sins, but that Christ has paid the penalty for me. I should have been hung on a cross. I should have been brutalized. I rightfully deserve death because my sins are that black. I deserve the wrath of the Father. But Christ was mocked and whipped and brutalized and crucified and suffered the wrath of the Father, paying the penalty of all the sins of those who trust in him. It's the penal death that Christ died. 
Secondly, it's a substitutionary death because Christ has become my substitute. That is, he took the place of all who would believe. I should have been nailed to a cross, but instead, Christ was nailed there instead of me. Substitutionary. And thirdly, it's an atonement in the sense that Christ's death on the cross has satisfied the demand of God. Penal substitutionary atonement. Christ died for my sins. Do you know what that means? It means that whenever anyone receives the gospel, that the sin question is dealt with. Christians don't believe in karma. There is no bad karma for us. All that was nailed to Christ's cross. My misdeeds are paid by him. I don't have to do penance. Indeed, there is nothing I can do, for Christ has done it for me. I once asked a group of Bible college students in Germany, do Christians suffer for their sins? And one student put up his hand and he said, yes, they do. Now, in order to be dramatic, I asked him to stand and explain to the class why it is that Christ died. See, he looked puzzled, and I went over it again. Whenever anyone places their trust in Christ, at that very moment of confessing our sins to God, surrendering our lives into the hands of Christ, at that moment, Christ's death on the cross has eternally satisfied the Father. We never pay for our sins, for Christ paid them for us. The debt is eradicated by his once-for-all sacrifice. Christ died for my sins. I will never be punished for my sins, for Christ was punished on my behalf. And that is the gospel. This is the matter of first importance. He was my justification before God. He's the only way in which acceptance before God is gained. And then Paul says, You've taken your stand in the gospel, and you're being saved by the gospel. The Bible sometimes speaks of our salvation in the past, and when it does, it means to teach us that the death of Christ was once for all accomplished at my salvation. My salvation is never in doubt. When I trust in Christ, it is assured through Christ's death that my sins are paid for. The Bible sometimes speaks of salvation in the future. I will be saved. When it speaks that way, it refers to the last judgment when all are rightly condemned for their sins before the throne of God. And when the Bible speaks that way, it means that on the final day of judgment, I will be saved from damnation. The Bible sometimes speaks of our salvation in the present, as it does here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2. And when it does, it speaks of the ongoing nature of our confidence in Christ. I'm proving my salvation daily by continually trusting in what he has done for us. And I think that's the key. It's not that we just believed once. It's that we continue to believe. You know, when the sailors in Columbus ships reached the point of great uncertainty, the real issue of whether they could go on had everything in the world to do with whether they could continue to have confidence in the evidence that the world was round or whether they would allow their fears to overwhelm them. See, even though saving faith is an initial act leading us to salvation, we prove our faith by continuing to come back to it and continuing to live in the confidence of what we have come to know is true. Might I press this matter home? It is absolutely essential that we continue to reinforce our faith by listening to the gospel, lest we reach the place in the open ocean that we want to turn back. And so each act of faith, each returning to the gospel is essential to our eternity. 
And that says Paul in verse 2, where he says, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, lest you believed in vain. Now, that would mean that we, all people, must never be confused about what the gospel is. If we hold fast to it, if this thing called the gospel is essential to our eternity, then nothing could be as important as being absolutely rock-solid, confident about what this thing is. We believe in vain if we forget to continue to have confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ who died on the cross in our place. If today, my dear listener, you have not yet received Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, might I lead you in a prayer? Simply pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I know that you are the Son of God and that you died in my place. I also know that I'm a sinner and I turn from my sins now and I renounce them utterly. I want to turn to you. Come, take over my life. I surrender my life into your hands. Take me that I might be yours eternally. I trust in you and in you alone and not in myself. In Jesus' name, amen. John, thanks for starting off this series in such a wonderful way. Uh, A quick question. The whole idea of Jesus suffering for me. Now, a lot of people might deny that, or or it seems popular right now to deny that. What would you say to them? Yeah, it is popular to deny that. In fact, uh, Ben, as you and I were talking about this, we remember the first trip we had to India. Uh, The guy that actually picked us up, uh, the first question that he had for me was, uh, do you believe in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ? Which means, do you believe that Christ bore my penalty on the cross? Uh, You know, it's fascinating that whether it's here uh, in Canada or in India or wherever we are, people are discussing this very thing. And Paul says it's of first importance. So I think what we need to do is we need to uh, not give any ground on this one. Uh, We need to tell people this is the gospel. There's nothing more important that we can talk about if we give up on, on Christ's death on our behalf. We've actually given up everything. Uh, If you'll remember, Ben, one of the things that I said to to our driver is, you know, if Christ didn't die for your sins, then you still have to die for them. I mean, either he took our place or we ourselves are going to go before the judgment bar of God and, and give an answer for our own sins. So this is a matter of first importance. So let's never give up that important issue. That's a great word, John. Thanks so much. And return again tomorrow with us, would you, at Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us next February for our 2018 Celebration Caribbean Cruise. One week of cruising pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly, joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, our very special musical guests and friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and new friends from coast to coast in a time of relaxation, reflection, and worship. These events have been incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot today and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada ministry supporters, no ministry funds are used to facilitate ministry vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by the participants.